invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to look at one of the more difficult passages in uh, the New Testament this morning, and so uh, I'm really excited about that. I've been in bed for uh, three or four days this week with uh, the, the thing that half the nation probably has or whatever, you know, going around. Some combination of bronchitis and I don't know whatever else uh, pretty much uh, made me funny in the head for a few days. So I was really glad to go to this passage in the Bible, which once we read it, you'll be like, what? This is, a, this is the kind of passage that you come to because you're an expositor and because you have to preach it because it's in front of you and laid out before you. But as I did uh, come out of my sick phase and was able to dive into what's here, I found that it is... Uh, it's very, very profitable, very powerful text um, is what we have before us. And so I'm going to read it to us and then, um, and then dive in. So listen as I read verses 21 through 31 of Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, but just as At that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman." Now, last week, we concluded with uh, a text that was surrounding Paul and his appeal to the Galatian people. They are a people who are um, part of a a young church movement in Asia Minor at this time, but they were being uh, seduced by bad leaders, false leaders, those who were called the Judaizers, who claimed to be Christians, but they were trying to add to the gospel in the minds of the people to say, just do this or do that, perform this part of the law, be circumcised, attend this ceremony, do anything that we're telling you to do in addition to the gospel. Don't just believe, but also do things to be part of our group, to be true Christians. And that was a false gospel, a false leadership, and a leadership that was very selfish in comparison to Paul, who was being loving, who was saying, come back under 
my leadership, come back under gospel leadership, come back under the gospel of free grace. And he was doing this out of sincerity in his heart. But look at verse 20. He says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. He didn't know how they were responding, so he didn't really want to change his tone. He didn't want to take the pressure off them because he wanted them to be gospel citizens and gospel believers. So he kept the pressure on. But as he kept the pressure on, he did change his communication style. Perhaps this is a way that he didn't just change. He wasn't changing his tone, but he was changing the communication style up a little bit to try to keep pressing his point that he's been making all along through the book, which is trust the free grace of God. Don't come back under some enslavement. Don't come under the tyranny of people's pressure. Be true followers of the gospel. And so what he uses here is an allegory, an allegory. Now, this is tough sledding in the New Testament because there's only one use of allegory in the New Testament, and here it is. Allegories are interesting things because uh, if you're going to define it, an allegory is assigning a meaning to a biblical text that does not fit the historical context. That's where you're assigning a meaning to something that actually happened, but not to the original historical meaning that was there in the first place. Now, that's different than what's called a typology. A typology is simply this. A typology is something in the biblical record that happened in the Old Testament that points to something in the future. Like, for instance, the ceremonial law, all the sacrifice animals class point to Christ and his death on the cross, right? Uh, The promised land, here's another form of typology. The promised land is an Old Testament picture of New Testament heaven, right? And so it goes. I mean, there, there are other ones. David is a picture of Christ. He is, he is a, the king of Israel, the ultimate king of Israel, but he was really a true picture of the ultimate king of the church, which is Christ, the king of kings, and he's the king of everything. And so you have many a preacher who will do something different than just typology. They'll allegorize and they'll spiritualize things and make, if you're an allegorizing preacher or an allegorizing teacher, you can take anything from the Bible and make it mean anything you want it to. And if you've ever heard preachers do this, you know what I'm talking about, where people twist all kinds of things up and say, well, this means that, and Noah's Ark must mean that, you know, you need to go buy a new boat. I don't know, just anything that people want to come up with Um, to make Scripture mean something. Well, Paul is taking liberty here and allegorizing Old Testament truths, things that actually happened in history, and he is allegorizing them um, in a way that takes them out of their, their historical context. But why can he do this? He can do this, and no one else can do this, because he did this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did this. And so if the Holy Spirit allegorized in the New Testament, then we go with it. And that's what we have before us. We have the Holy Spirit's leading, teaching from this allegory. And so we're going to follow this path beginning in verse 21. If you have an outline or you can follow on the screen and write it down, 
Paul uses an allegory to break down legalism and to promote spiritual freedom. We all want our legalism broken down, and we all need spiritual freedom. And verse 21 begins with an acknowledgement. Paul is just wanting the group to acknowledge something. Just acknowledge this. Look at verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, you who keep putting yourself back under the law, you're free from this. You're free from this old covenant enslavement. This is, you're not supposed to do this, but you who are doing this, do you not listen to the law? He's saying, listen, you're doing something that's negative with God's word. You're placing yourself under it as if you're a slave, as if you have to follow it for heaven. You need to be a a law keeper in your mind, a worker where you're working your way to heaven. And you need to see the law differently because the law here will not enslave you. The law, if it's appropriately used, will actually unshackle you and show you the right path that you need, the path of grace. And so Paul then, for the next few verses, unpacks a piece or a portion of the law from the book of Genesis to answer this problem, this problem of being enslaved. And look at verse 22. This is where you have the historical account of Abraham's two sons. Abraham's two sons. This is a, an actual true thing, and, and we'll find it back in Genesis, a true story, where he says, for it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. The two sons were Ishmael and Isaac. If you know your Old Testament, you know those names. Not all the names mentioned here are mentioned in the text, but they're understood. Um, Both Ishmael and Isaac, Ishmael's name isn't mentioned directly here. They were born of one father, Father Abraham, but of two different mothers. Ishmael was born to Hagar and Isaac was born to Sarah. Hagar was a slave woman. So she's representing the idea of being enslaved and Sarah a free woman. So the names Ishmael and Sarah aren't mentioned in this Pauline text, but they're understood from the story. But what's more important is the social status. It's two ideas, being enslaved like Hagar was a slave woman or being free, being under the promise that Sarah stood under as she gave birth to Isaac. Being enslaved or being free. These are the two categories of spiritual significance here. And it comes according to the story, because we're going to unpack the story here. But in essence, what you need to understand is that, is that Ishmael came through a forced intervention. Ishmael came according to the flesh, according to the flesh. Look at verse 23. It says, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. So Ishmael came through this intervention, through a wrong union between Abraham and and Hagar, while at the same time, Sarah's union with Abraham was according to a divine work of God, still through human means, but there was also a divine intervention. So you have two different dynamics that are taking place. And at this point, I would invite you, turn back to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16 in your Bibles. And this way we will um, kind of see the story up close and personally. Genesis 16, 1 through 6. 
Now, Sarai, and Sarai was Sarah, Abram's wife, Abram being Abraham, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, we can stop here. What you see here is, is Sarai and you have Abram, um, they're being impatient. Abram has heard that uh, the, the, the line of God's promise was going to take place. The Abrahamic covenant was going to take place through Sarah. There was going to be a child given to them. But there was impatience here. And I don't know if it's just that Sarai was not trusting the promise of God at this point, or it was more her clouded judgment where she wanted children so desperately. But even though custom, the custom of the age allowed for Sarai to do something like to take Hagar as an Egyptian servant and say, listen, husband, take her as your second wife. That's still all wrong. The Old Testament um, forbids this. It condemns this. Monogamous marriage was always the original design from Genesis chapter 2. However, however, this is the direction that Sarah went. And she introduced sin into the relationship. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, you know, they went to Egypt. They went to Egypt in this way. I mean, they're in the promised land. They're there 10 years. But um, Hagar, the Egyptian is what they did. They were mixing interracially um, something that wasn't done in the old covenant. And they went in a direction that was, that was wrong. Ultimately, sin led to sin. Um, Hagar ended up, once she was impregnated, looking down at Sarah with contempt. Sarah ended up dealing harshly with Hagar. We can read, it, read of this. Look at verse 4. And he went into Hagar and she conceived and she saw that she had conceived and she looked with contempt on her mistress. She was looking down upon Sarah. Sin was multiplying. And Sarai, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked down on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power to do. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So literally, Sarah, who's this godly woman, right, who later on is... is shown to us as an example for women to follow. She wasn't perfect. She was a woman who, who was harsh, who was a bully at this point, and bullied Hagar out of her, out of her own um, home. So if you look back, though, if you look back to uh, Galatians, you have the opposite um, scenario. You have, by contrast, the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Back in Galatians 4, verse 23, the son of the free woman born according to a promise. The birth of Isaac is the contrast here. 
And the birth of Isaac comes by a promise, and it couldn't be attributed by human effort. The promise was made to Sarah and Abraham in their late stages of their life. And it was such so stunning to them for them to have a son. Here you have Abraham who's 100 years old. You have Sarah who's 90 years old. Even in an Old Testament economy, I think people say, well, didn't people live long periods of time at that point? Well, not at that point. By then, the human um, life stage period was very similar to our own. So 90 years old was a miracle for someone to give birth and to be able to nurse and bring up a child. And in fact, Isaac's name means laughter. Because both um, Abraham and Sarah laughed in two different scenarios, laughed when they heard the news that she was to conceive. And it's amazing because they really weren't believing what God was doing and what God was up to. Turn in your Bibles back to Genesis um, chapter 17. Genesis 17. If you go back to verse 15, and God said, move over to verse 15. God said to Abraham... As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will, she will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a, a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And so... Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael, live, Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So they were laughing at this. Look at verse 18. I mean, chapter 18. The angels came, and they were... Um, being served by Abraham and listened to by Abraham. And at this point, Sarah is the one who overhears um, the plan of God. Verse 9 in chapter 18, they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Look at verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself. So it might have been more of a quiet laugh, only a laugh that God could hear is the point. And she said, after I'm worn out, my Lord is, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? Where's her laughter coming from? Is it just disbelief? Is it just mocking the news that she's going to conceive or the the idea that she would conceive? This is the kind of laugh that's coming out of a a heart of grief. Sarah is upset. She's been mocked by Hagar all these years. She's been looked down upon with contempt. She's had this, uh, this sadness of not being able to conceive her whole life. And so she's actually... Um, laughing out of being upset with God, I think, over the fact that she feels like God is mocking her. Is she supposed to have pleasure now? Is this some joke? Is this some, some sick joke that's being played against me? There's no way this can be true. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And so 
she is confronted at this point. Actually, she's confronted, verse 15, it says, Sarah denied that she laughed. I did not laugh, she said, for I was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. You did laugh. God was pinning her down. Why all these details? Why is this important? I mean, you really have a detailed story where, you know, Sarah and Abraham are 10 years in Canaan. Sarah's not trusting the promises of God. Abraham's not trusting the promise of God, not trusting the covenant that was made, a very dramatic covenant where Abraham had been put to sleep, had, you know, the glory of God had moved through dead animals. This is a covenant God made with himself saying, I'm going to bless the nations. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through your loins. This is going to happen because of your faith. All of this is going to happen. And then they lose heart in God's promise. And Sarah says, listen, we're going to take this Egyptian servant and we're going to make her the answer to our prayers. We will have children through this mother as a surrogate mom, but you're going to have to take her as a wife. You're going to have to become a polygamist. She introduced all of this, this work into their world, and it was very hurtful. It was very harmful. This is the wrong way to do things. This is operating according to the flesh. And this is a picture of the Galatians if they were going to obey the law and be law keepers instead of following the grace of the gospel. If you're going to revert to going back under the law, if you're going to revert to going into the flesh, you remember what it's like to be saved by grace alone, but now you're going to go back to manners and customs. You're going to go back to doing something to try to prop yourself up to be right with God then that's very similar work to what Hagar did where it was a forced dimension to try to create life instead of what Sarah couldn't do for herself, that which was laughable to Abraham and Sarah. She's 90 years old. He's 100 years old, and yet a child is going to be given to you through divine intervention. That's the picture of salvation. That's, this is the wide chasm. Both accounts, the the account of Hagar and Sarah, were natural accounts, but the difference could not be any broader in terms of how those two things came about. One was through a forced work, and the other was by the grace of God. Now, that's the historical record. That's the... um, Those are the details, and this is the purpose behind it. But look at verse 24. Now the allegorizing begins. Look at verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Stop there, an allegory. These are, this first one is the covenant of slavery. This is, Uh, an allegory that can be broken down into two covenants. The first covenant is a covenant of slavery. One is of Hagar, and then the other covenant is the covenant of freedom, and that is the covenant of Sarah. So Paul is calling the first covenant from Mount Sinai. Now you say, isn't that a reference to the Mosaic covenant? Isn't that a real covenant? Aren't we now more confused than ever before, right? I mean, the law, the Old Testament law of the Ten Commandments was given on Mount Sinai, and that was a true covenant. But that is not Paul's point here. Paul is actually not talking about the Mosaic covenant. 
What he's saying is, is yes, there is the Mosaic Covenant, but this is an allegorizing of not a real covenant. It's the idea that Hagar's covenant is a pretend covenant, and it's the idea that people are using the Mosaic Law inappropriately. The Mosaic Law was, was meant to be obeyed for righteousness' sake. It was meant to be obeyed to, to, to be holy in God's holy old covenant system. It was meant to be followed for righteousness' sake and for the glory of God. It was also a covenant that was given to show people that they did not measure up because as you disobey the law of God, you show your need for Christ and your need for grace. That's the old covenant. But people were following the old covenant as if they could earn righteousness with God. And people do that today even in the church. You look at what the Bible says for you to do and you start to sweat it out and you say, you know what, if I follow the Bible well enough, then I'm going to make myself right with God. And Paul is saying, don't do that. You're putting yourself under a yoke of slavery again, under a a heavy weight on your burden of slavery, trying to follow, trying to law keep. Don't go there. That will burn you out. And he calls that the covenant of Hagar. That's what's wrong. Uh, one is the, the Mount Sinai covenant where you're, this thing he's saying is bearing children for slavery. People who are misappropriately using the law to try to make themselves right with God. It's like a churning factory of slaves that are coming out of this. Instead of the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai that was really a picture of deliverance where the children of Israel had been delivered and redeemed out from the slavery of Pharaoh and were given the law of God to go into the promised land, which is a picture of heaven. Instead of applying it that way, he's saying people have twisted it into this covenant of Hagar where they're following the law and becoming slaves. That's what the picture is here. It's a covenant of slavery. Yes, the law is good. We know that from Romans chapter 6. Um, but 2 Corinthians 3, 6 also says that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Legalism will kill you. It will starve you spiritually. So Paul's saying that this covenant is bad. You know, the, the mention that Mount Sinai is in Arabia is, was curious to me. I don't think anyone knows exactly which mountain is Mount Sinai, but we know that, it, um, was, that it's found in the Arabian Peninsula, east and south of the Promised Land. And this is Paul's way of speaking of Hagar's descendants through Ishmael that eventually moved there, and they became Arabs in Arabia. And, and that's where Mount Sinai is located. And so Paul's making this linkage to say you have people who, who misappropriated things and, and missed, the, missed the mark there. And they followed the way of Ishmael. And we know all of the Arab-Israeli animosity that's begun there 4,000 years ago. And it goes on till this day. So Hagar is the one who corresponds with present Jerusalem. Look at verse 25. It says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. What are we talking about here? Jerusalem is in my mind, a good place. It's a place I want to get to, 
Um, I want to get to the Holy Land. I want to see what's there. It's, it's the place where, um, look, it's, it's the place where all, everything happened in the Old Testament uh, that, of significance. It's a centerpiece of, of life and a picture of, um, you know, where Jesus is going to return to. And so Jerusalem is, is a joyful place to consider. And at the same time, Paul is being very, very clear to say that as people are misappropriating the law, as they're following the law as something to try to make themselves right with God, this place is actually a negative place presently. It's a place where, where people and the Jews right now are in slavery. They are under a stupor. They, they are blinded and don't see Christ Remember, the Jews crucified Christ, and those who didn't repent um, were condemned for that. And they condemned Christ because they didn't see him as grace. They saw him as the opposite. So Jerusalem can look like a place where people are saying, man, I am free because I'm of Jerusalem, and I am free because of my Jewish heritage, and yet be enslaved all at the same time time. The Judaizers, they would have been very, very shocked by this kind of phrase, by the way. They would have said, we're of Jerusalem. We're good. We're of the line of Abraham and Sarah. We're good. We're not of Hagar. And yet Paul is reversing all of this and saying, no, the Judaizers are the ones who are of Hagar. They are the ones who are of the Ishmaelites. They are the ones who are in the wrong. They are the ones not of the promise of God, but of a forced intervention. Whereas Christians, true Christians, have a different mother. Their mother is not Hagar. Their mother is Sarah. Their mother is a different Jerusalem. Look at verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. It's a difference here. You know, the story in John chapter 8 captures this very well. I would invite you to turn over to John 8, where Jesus confronted Pharisees. The Pharisees also thought that they were safe because they had the heritage in Abraham. If you look at verse 31 of John 8, Jesus uh, and the Feast of Tabernacles at the end, towards the end of his ministry, had come to expose himself in Jerusalem at that time and said he was the light of the world. Uh, And he also called himself the living water. And so he was being confronted by the Pharisees. And Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But the Pharisees who were standing there, they answered him. They said, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, they were completely offended. The idea that they need something to free them. They need truth to free them. Why would they need that? They are of Abraham. They are fine, right? I was thinking back uh, historically of the, um, the children that were in Jonathan Edwards' church and, uh, in the Northeast, and they were trying to ride on the coattails of their grandparents into heaven, and they were offended because Jonathan Edwards was saying, listen, you can't take communion if you're not a Christian. And they were saying, no, you don't understand. We have been raised in this church. Uh, my parents were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. And so we must too be Christians. And part of what ultimately um, ended 
um, Jonathan Edwards' career at that church was because he held the line on communion and said, really, true conversion is a matter of the heart. So children, as you sit here, you need to examine your own hearts. Um, You are Christians only if God has changed you from the inside out and changed your heart. You're not a Christian just because you're with your parents at church. And parents, you're not Christians just because your parents went to church uh, before you or perhaps your church or your parents go to church with you now or your grandparents go to church with you now. Those things do not save. Those things do not make you any more right with God than if you were the first generation of Christian in your home in the first place. If you're someone who's a single person, who's um, only hearing of Christ now for the first time in your life, um, you're as well off as anybody in any situation. You have to know the truth, and, make that, and that's what makes you free. Well, these Pharisees back in John 8 were confused by that, and they were, their confusion turned into anger. They said, we're the offspring of Abraham. How dare you say this? Verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. He acknowledges that. I know your history. Yet you seek to kill me because my word word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. So they're going back to that heritage thing. Later on in verse 43, he says, why don't you understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my wor- bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He is a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, listen, you're a liar, so you're not a Christian. If you're of that mindset, if that's your character, if that's your position, then that's your father. Even if you are of the Abrahamic um, family line, it doesn't mean that you're of Abraham's promise. You can be always raised a Christian in a New Testament church, and you can say, listen, I am a member of a church, a New Testament church. I am prescribing to the New Testament doctrine. But if the truth is not in you, if you are a liar, if you're of the father of lies, if you have hate in your heart that's unrepented of, then you shouldn't have confidence where you stand with God. That's what Jesus was teaching. That's the exact same thing that Paul is trying to break through here. If you look back at verse um, 26 of Galatians chapter Chapter 4, you see it again. He's saying, Jerusalem above is free. What is he talking about here? He's talking actually about heaven. He's saying the Jerusalem that's above is free. It's not physical Jerusalem. That's not what you want to look to right now. Don't look there for your heaven. Don't look there as a picture of heaven. Look to your citizenship being in actual heaven. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews 12, 22. But you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Revelation 21, 2. And I saw a holy city. This is what John said. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
This is where you will look. This is where you are free. Now, verse 27. Paul here is up to it again. He's allegorizing again and, and basically takes Isaiah 54, 1, which originally spoken by the prophet Isaiah, applied to the Jews who were in exile in Babylon. They were taken away in Babylonian captivity and they needed some hope. And so this is written to them. Rejoice, O barren one. He's talking metaphorically to these Israelites saying, listen, you're going to be freed eventually. But Paul here is applying this retroactively to what happened to Sarah. He's speaking of her, saying, Rejoice, O barren one, as if God was talking to Sarah here. Now, are we supposed to do this with Scripture? Is this a good hermeneutical principle? No, we're not. Can Paul do this? Yes, Paul can do this. This is good. This is what he does. He's applying Scripture back to Sarah, saying, O barren one, Who does not bear, break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one, um, than those of the one who has a husband. In other words, uh, it was unbelievable. It was divine intervention. And what was an impenetrable barrier to be fulfilled was ultimately broken wide open. I want to say it this way. This is a picture of your conversion, or it should be. If you understand how lost you were before you were saved, if you understand the, the, the wicked DNA that was in you before you believed, if you understand the barriers of disbelief in the deadness of your spiritual condition that had to be broken open, you understand that you are not, of the, you are not born again under the covenant of Hagar. There was not something that you did. And a lot of people think that they have done things. You know, I set myself up to believe, or I went to the right spiritual situation to believe, or I was put exactly with the right person at the right time who spoke the exact anecdote or illustration that melted my heart and then I believed, or I, whatever, I went to the right Christian school or the right Christian college or the, I read the right Christian book or heard the right Christian preacher or something happened to me externally that changed me. If you think that those things really saved you, then you really don't understand the phenomenal miracle that God did in your heart ultimately. Yes, he uses those external means. He uses people to speak truth. He, he uses the truth in our ears to, to wake us up, and we understand those things. But ultimately, your salvation, where he took you from death to life, was a, a miracle. It was a miracle. He opened your blind eyes to see truth. A lot of uh, churches will gather people of all different kind of walks and different faiths and belief systems and call it Christian. But ultimately, true Christians, true believers, those who really are awakened, those who really love God, that was a miracle. We were dead and we were brought to life by God. And it's this kind of barrenness that it makes no sense. It's like you're a 90-year-old woman hoping to conceive, hoping to give birth, hoping for something to happen. And there's no way it can happen unless God did an amazing work. And verse 28 is the beginning of the application here. Look at this. This is what it's like to be saved. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You who were hopeless, he gives a strong affirmation. 
You, like Isaac, you, like the one who laughs, you are alive spiritually. You are children of the promise. You have an inheritance awaiting you. You're signed, sealed, and delivered as a Christian. Paul's referring back again in the next verse to Isaac and Ishmael again in Genesis chapter 21. Um, If you look at verse 29, he says, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, okay, I've made the case allegorically with the two covenants that you're not of the covenant of Hagar. You're not enslaved like this churning factory of people who feel obligated to law keep and try to prop themselves up and make themselves right with God. You're not someone who should be looking externally to Jerusalem, the physical place of Jerusalem for your salvation. Your eyes are pointed heavenward. Your citizenship is in heaven. All these things are yours. You are of Isaac. You're of Sarah. You're of Abraham. You're of this promise. You were of Christ. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that in this life, though we have faith and we know we have the promise of God, we're still going to be persecuted. It doesn't deliver you from tough times in this life. In fact, a lot of times when you become a Christian and you know this to be true, life actually gets easier in terms of our spirit and in terms of our guilt, but more difficult in terms of our relational pressures and in terms of our relationships. I talked to somebody last week that came up after the sermon who just said, listen, I am still brokenhearted over the fact that I had to confront a sibling of mine and my sibling has rejected Christ and I'm willing to keep the pressure on and not ease up off the gas pedal in terms of um, my witness and my testimony, but it breaks my heart every single day. And we sat there and cried after the service over that situation. Why? Because it breaks your heart to know Christ and know that you're free from the law and to know that you have found grace and to know that you have found comfort and know that you're going to go to heaven. And you know that you know you're a Christian at such a level that you're actually willing to tell people about it and put the relationship on the line. And that's what we do. And it draws persecution. I was thinking of an analogy of what this looks like because you, you have people who are, who are trying to get to heaven. They're trying to get to heaven through religion. They're trying to get to heaven through the covenant of Hagar. They're trying to get to heaven through a, a misapplication of Mount Sinai. They're trying to get to heaven through their own good works. And when they meet you who's saying, you don't got to do those things. You just need grace. A lot of times it's like, being in a, a crowded room where somebody has called fire out and, and everybody's panicking and trying to get by and, and you're this person who's just trying to follow policy and procedure in terms of following out the right way, in terms of being rescued, and everybody else is trampling you down and pushing you out by their own efforts to try to get out of their own situation. And that's what it feels like in persecution. People don't want a grace-filled Christian to tell them that they don't have to law-keep if that's the path that they believe they're supposed to take. They want to push and scrap and try to do everything they can do to try to make themselves right with God, to try to stamp out their own guilt and try to make themselves feel good again. Well, you're just saying, no, 
I'm trusting in God. I'm relying on Christ alone. I'm not relying on law-keeping to save me. I'm relying on Christ who's kept the law for me, that which I could not keep. He did in my stead so that he could shed his, his blood on the cross and give me the grace of the gospel so he could deliver me. Christ Jesus speaks into your heart grace as a Christian and opens your heart to go, I have heaven. Watching this uh, video of Don Carson yesterday, and he was talking about um, children of Israel and and how you have two different scenarios where where the children of Israel were being um, you know promised by God that a death angel was going to come over and it was going to strike down the firstborn in the home, and one person was was splattering the blood on their 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 doorposts and saying, "I've done this. We've we've kept the law. We've done our thing." and and, and we're, we're, we're good, we're sealed up, and we're ready to go, and, and we're trusting God and, and, and all these things. And then this other person says, you know, I, I think I'm supposed to do it. And, I mean, the, the river's been turned to blood, the mosquitoes have been really bad lately, and these plagues have been happening, and now my firstborn might die, and you've got a bunch of children, and, you know, I, I've only got my one kid here, my one son, and I can't afford for that child to die, so I guess I'll go through the tradition and put the blood up there too and, and do my best and, and um, hope everything works out okay. And, you know, that night the death angel would go over and which household do you think would be saved? Well, the answer is both of them, both of them, because both of them were following the promises of God to the best of their ability at that point into where they were spiritually. You have some people who have strong faith in the gospel and some people who are trusting the gospel with a robust spirit who get the clarity of the gospel and understand. And some people who are doing the best they can to just trust what God tells them to do and and trust the gospel. But that's the path of grace, no matter where you are on the continuum of your own spiritual maturity And that's so different than people who are law-keeping who say, you know what, I'll just do this my own way. Look again, look at verse 30. It says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, this is a very harsh scene from Genesis chapter 21, 1 through 9. Again, you have a situation where um, back there, and I, I would just invite you to turn there. Since we've been back and forth to Genesis a lot, I can't resist. Genesis chapter 21. It's one of the harshest scenes that you, that you find here. If you look at verse, verse 8, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abram, Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. So Isaac was born and Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. Who is this? Well, this is Ishmael. Ishmael is a picture of persecution, is a picture of those who are laughing. Um, In fact, um, Spurgeon said Ishmael would have been glad to have shown his enmity to um, the hated Air by blows and personal assault, but was by a superior power held in check so that he could get no further than mocking. We don't know. We don't know for sure exactly how this worked out, but, but it was of such a level again that Sarah was, was brought to the place, verse 10, 
She said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Again, that kind of behavior is sinful on Sarah's part. And how we understand this exactly in terms of this being a picture of of putting away sin from, from righteousness is difficult for us to fully understand. But Sarah was saying... In essence, this, this Ishmael has mocked my son and so do away with him. Abraham went ahead and did that. But this is a picture more importantly in the New Testament to us as putting away sin in our own hearts and our own lives. We are of the Holy Spirit. We are of the promise. We are spiritually free. And those who are free are different than those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. How does all this tie together? How does this wrap up? We have to go into chapter 5, verse 1, to bring this to a conclusion. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, in the New Testament, there really aren't scripture breaks. Um, It was all numbered later. We know that. There aren't chapter breaks. Chapter 5, verse 1, probably could be put as the end of chapter 4 as the concluding verse. Because Paul's saying, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What's the point of all of this allegory? We are free in Jesus Christ. Why did you come to know Christ? So that you could be free, not a slave, for freedom. So what's the application? Stand firm in this. Once you know Christ, stand firm. People will try to do everything they can do to drag you away from just a focus, a pure, simple, devoted focus on Christ. Stand in Christ. Don't be moved. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery.